right to the Word of God. If you'd open your Bibles to Hebrews. Connections are very important. And so it's crucial for us as we learn to read the Bible well to make the connections that Scripture makes. I hope to attempt that today. I'm going to do something just a little different than I normally do, but I hope that it will be edifying. And it is for the purpose of our, hopefully, uh, earnestly laying hold of the idea of Christ in the Old Covenant Scriptures. And uh, going to be focusing on just one book, but that will be an important focus, God willing. So, we're going to read, for those of you visiting with us, uh, we have been in Hebrews for a while, and uh, it is because Chapter 1, especially the first four verses and the arguments that follow, chapter 1 really sets the stage for the entire book. And it presents to us uh, among the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful Christology in all the Word of God. If you want to feed on Christ, read Hebrews regularly. He is gloriously set before us here. But sometimes it takes making some connections to see it. So I hope that we'll do a little of that today. We're going to read verses 5 through 14. And if you would please stand with me once more. We'll give our attention to God's holy word. I pray that our hearts and minds will be united Brethren, the God we worship is set before us in this entire first chapter, and we will see God the Son especially set before us in verses 5 through 14. This is God's word. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. 
and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? Amen. Please remain standing for our morning, our pastoral prayer. If you have a condition, I know we've had a lot of sick folk here lately. If you have a condition that makes it difficult for you to continue standing, please feel free to be seated. Our hearts will still be united as we present ourselves before our God. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, God of the Holy Scriptures, the God to whom we have sung, the God who hath created all things, the God who hath saved his people and is saving his people and will save his people until he's done. We praise thee. We want none but the God revealed in this word. O Father, blessed Son, and precious Spirit, how we praise Thee, how we lift our hearts to say, we thank Thee for loving us. We thank Thee for saving us. We thank Thee that Thou art sanctifying us. And we thank Thee that that sanctification will one day end in glorification. We shall be like Christ, for we shall see him as he is. We are a day closer to that glorious moment. We are a day closer to that day of judgment. We are a day closer to the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, let us not waste a moment of this precious day of worship. I pray now for thy people, how thou lovest them. Wouldst thou come, O God, and affirm thy love to them from thy, thy holy word today. And Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper later, I pray that we will see the blessings of the new covenant, that we will understand the glory and the beauty of being in covenant with Thee, with Christ, with the Spirit, by the blood of our Savior. Help us, O God, to realize the marvelous promises set forth in Thy new covenant. And now, my Father, bless, bless Thy people. May the joy of God well up in their hearts. Convict us of sin, reprove us, rebuke us, if that is our need today. We want what thou believest best for our souls. But oh, I do pray for the lost. There are souls 
Thou knowest, O God, there are souls who do not know Thee. They do not believe Thee. They do not embrace Thy word. They do not believe that God sent His Son into this world to save sinners. Father, may today be the day that their unbelief is shattered and their darkness is scattered and the glorious light of Jesus Christ would shine in their hearts. Bring the sinners to Thee. And now, Holy Spirit, we pray that we have not grieved Thee. We pray that we have not quenched Thee. And we ask that our vessels might be filled with Thee, with Thy power today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. The sacred text that we have just read tells us that God says that his son is God. That is what we gave our time to consider at our last gathering around Hebrews. God says his son is God. It's not a word play. It is vital that we know and understand that a large portion of the people who say they believe in Jesus do not believe that he is the living God come in the flesh. That all the cults give lip service to Jesus, but they certainly don't believe that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. God says this to show Christ's superiority to the angels. God created and sustains angels. And his agent and his agent in creating and upholding all things by the word of his power is the Son. God commanded the angels to worship the Son and then he addresses him as God. I'll repeat that. He has commanded the angels to worship. Can your mind by faith rise up a little bit and imagine a place of absolute eternal splendor where hundreds of millions of angels and citizens of heaven are praising the one seated at the Father's right hand. There's a man there. There is a man there. Jesus, the God-man. And that God-man is superior to the angels, great as the angels may be. So God commanded the angels to worship that man, that God-man. And he then addresses him as God in the splendor of the Son's enthronement, enthronement in heaven. Do you long to see it? It's not that far away. 
Now, this is not only extraordinary revelation. God is telling us that his son is God and that all the heavenly hosts are to worship him. That includes us. We're to worship him. That is why he saved us. He didn't save us just to go to heaven. And I thank the Lord for being saved. I thank the Lord for the glorious thought of going to heaven. That's not all that Christianity is. You were saved to be added to a congregation of his believers so that we would worship him and shine the light of Jesus Christ in this world by our worship here in the building, by our lives outside the building, wherever we are. Now, it is extraordinary revelation and it's a confirmation of the person and nature of Jesus Christ. But this also plainly displays the Son as King of God's kingdom. It's called God's kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Son. By default, it's the kingdom of the Spirit as well. But it points to the Son, the God-man who is sitting on the throne. He is the King. Now, we don't have a king here. England still has one. But we don't. We may have had presidents that fancied themselves kings. But they are not, according to our Constitution. So having been the kind of government that we have all grown up in here, we don't have the idea and notion of bowing to a king, of honoring a king like other nations that do. I mean, you know, we're... We're in a democracy, right? Everybody, everybody counts. Now everybody counts. But at the same time, they say, and everybody's thoughts count. No, they don't. They count, they count for good or evil, but they sure don't all count for good. And there are some thoughts that are a whole lot better than the ones we think. We find them here in the scriptures. But I want, I want you to understand, Jesus is a king. Jesus is not just some kind of fuzzy, religious object. He's certainly not a statue on your dashboard or over your fireplace. Jesus is the living God come in the flesh who has risen again, has ascended into glory and sits at the Father's right hand, ruling the, the universe, governing all things. And God the Father says so. There's no greater witness. Jesus even said that on earth. I have a greater witness than John the Baptist. The works the Father has given me to do. I've got the greater witness. And God now witnesses to us through the, the author of Hebrews that his son is God and not to be profaned. He's not the butt of jokes. So now, having said that, we should pause and ask this question. What is the source of this revelation that we've just considered? What is the source of this revelation. Let, let me remind you. Revelation is God's making known divine knowledge 
from the divine realm to humans. In other words, it's God revealing knowledge which we cannot get a hold of any other way than him showing us. And he's pleased to show us. Revelation is a mercy and a grace and an act of love from God. For him to tell us things we would never have thought or never been able to conceive is a great mercy. He is a communicating God. So, God revealing himself and his truth to us. That's revelation. God revealing himself and his truth to us. Okay, so let's return to our question. What is the source of Hebrews' revelation of God's Son? Now, we might answer the Old Testament Scriptures. If you were thinking that, you would be completely right. However, from what portion of that Old Testament revelation do the quoted texts come Have you thought about that? I know some of you that have heard the messages that have begun here in chapter 1 at least have some inkling. Of the seven passages quoted in verses 5 through 14, six are from the Psalms. In fact, 44% of the Old Covenant passages that are quoted or alluded to in Hebrews come from the Psalms, almost half. Our precious Lord said to the Jews who sought to kill him, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. He's not talking about the book of Romans. He's not talking about the book of Matthew. He's not talking about a syllable in the New Testament. He's talking to the Jews about the scriptures that God in his mercy gave to them. Now the sentence, search the scriptures, is given to us here as a command. It can also be understood uh, as just a a declaration, uh, a, a regular sentence in which Christ said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. Either way that we see it, the point is this. Jesus says, first of all, you have scriptures. Everybody here has scriptures. He said, now you search them in order to find everlasting life. And I certainly hope that all of you have found everlasting life in the scriptures that you own. I hope there's fingerprints on every page. But the point is, Jesus is saying something astounding to them. Taking this as a command, he says, search the scriptures, which would probably sound 
insulting to them. They thought they knew the scriptures well. And he said, for in them you think you have eternal life. They're right about that. But then he adds, they are they which testify of me. He's the one who is life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So what he's saying to them is even though you have the scriptures, you don't believe them because they're about me. Now, we need to understand that. <clears throat> what is the author of Hebrews doing? Why is he plundering the Old Testament scriptures, especially Psalms? He wants the believing Jews in his day that are abandoning, apostatizing from the faith because apparently of the fear of coming persecution. So what's his point? This isn't just a theological debate. He's telling them the scriptures are about me. And we want to see him so that we have a hope. An anchor for our souls in the coming storms. We need to know who Christ is. Who he is. What he has done to save us. And what his promises are to keep us. Because the days may be darker. The days may get darker than anybody in this room has ever seen. Not saying that it will. I am no prophet. But if you're following at all, some of the things that are being proposed, they are nothing but devilish. Anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-people. So we all need an anchor in the storm. And that's who Christ is. There's no other place to go. <clears throat> Thankful there's only one option. <laughs> Christ. Christ has been with his people. There are those who think that we will all be gone before it gets bad. I hope that happens. <clears throat> but throughout the history of the church... The Lord's people have not been gone when horrifying things, horrifying governments take over. We may well, we may well face great darkness and great peril. I pray not. I pray that we will catch fire and preach the gospel and live like holy people in the face of a decaying culture. So, <clears throat> while the statement that Christ made to the Jews applies to the Old Testament generally, the author of Hebrews appeals to the Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament library. That's the well that he keeps running back to. I can tell you that he, he goes, <clears throat> he either quotes or makes allusions to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, 
Haggai, Proverbs, and 2 Samuel. 44% is Psalms. And we're profiting from it. As I've mentioned, and I don't mind mentioning again, the seven passages that are here in, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, six of them are directly from the Psalms. The other is from 2 Samuel. So, with that in mind, we want to see why he goes to the Psalms so much. And uh, the title of our message is, The Psalms Reveal Jesus' Deity and Kingdom. Very often, we, in, in the day in which we live and in the theology that many of us have grown up into, we don't see much emphasis on the Old Testament scriptures as we should. The writer of Hebrews believed that Psalms was the mine to uh, dig all the treasures of Christ out. As a matter of fact, the other passages that I meant don't uh, always apply specifically to the Lord Jesus like the ones in Psalms that he takes out does or do. So the Jews could not, and many of them still do not see Jesus as the promised Christ, God's Messiah, Messiah the King. May the Father grant by his Holy Spirit that we may see Christ more clearly, more lovingly, and more worshipfully. So our first major heading is this. The Psalms are full of Christ and his kingdom. We should all be able to remember that. The Psalms are full of Christ and his kingdom. As I begin this, and it really is, this brief survey of Psalms, I acknowledge leaning on and borrowing heavily on the teaching of Dr. Mark Fittato. He's the professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And uh, his work on the Psalms has been very helpful to me. And uh, I'm, I, am, I am borrowing a great deal of his work. <clears throat> so the first thing to, to, to say as we take up a little journey is what are Psalms? What are they? Psalms are, I think most of you know, songs. Psalms are songs. The collection of 150 psalms make it the largest book in the Bible. Those psalms were the ancient Israelites' hymn book. We have a hymn book. The 150 psalms was their hymn book. <clears throat> and still is for many in our day. In fact, Psalms has been the hymn book and the prayer book. The hymn book and the prayer book of Jews and Christians in many centuries. For many, many centuries. The English title for this book is Psalms. We're familiar with that. But sometimes we call it the Psalter. You can say to some Christians, we sang today from the Psalter, and they have no idea what you're talking about. We're talking about singing one of God's 
hymns, one of God's psalms. The Hebrew title is Praises. It's the book of praises. If you read Hebrew, you will not see psalms, but praises. And the Psalter is truly, truly the book of praises. Now, what do the psalms contain? This beautiful, soul-stirring collection of praises, prayers, poetry expresses the full range of human emotions. It covers everything from the deeper depression or from the deepest depression to the highest joys. And those joys are in God and in His blessings. The Psalms go from the internal thoughts of the heart to the external experiences common to human life in a sin-infected world. Every major theme in the Bible, the major themes, can be found in these precious poems. When someone thinks of theology, I don't think too many of us think of the book of Psalms. We might say Romans, we might say Hebrews, the epistles of Paul. But the Psalms are filled with the, of the, filled with the theology of both the old and later the new covenant people. <clears throat> God's people see and sense the reality of life. In the Psalms. You follow that? If you really like the Psalms, why? Is it because, oh, you like Hebrew poetry? Hmm. That would be okay. But what you're hearing is men's hearts. Their hearts. Their experiences. Their sorrows. Their happiness. It is because of these precious poems, it's because of their wonderful theology, and for many more reasons, that the Psalms are the favorite book in the Bible for many believers. Over the years, I ask new converts after they have been walking with the Lord for some time, what are you reading? Do you have a favorite book? It's not unusual to hear the Psalms. Nobody said Habakkuk yet. I'm waiting but I won't hold my breath. Now, Martin Luther had this to say about the Psalms. Many of the Holy Fathers prized and praised the Psalter above all the other books of the Scripture. The Psalter ought to be a precious and beloved book, if for no other reason than this. It promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly. And pictures his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom. That it might well be called a little Bible. It is comprehended most beautifully and briefly. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. 
close quote. Luther continues. In fact, I have a notion that the Holy Spirit wanted to take the trouble himself to complete a short Bible and a book of examples of all Christendom or all saints so that anyone who could not read the whole Bible would have here anyway almost an entire summary of it comprised in one little book. I have a feeling most of us don't think that way about Psalms. And if we don't, we should be thinking that way. We need to read it from, Gen- uh, from the chapter 1 to the end and read it again and read it again and then begin to take note and begin to meditate upon what's going on. And then think about what God has recorded for us. John Calvin said, quote, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. An anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. I trust every regenerate soul here has had at least one moment where you begin to read Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Every Christian knows something about that experience you have saved me you've shed the blood of thy son that I might be righteous before thee and I have fallen cleanse me wash me sin is filthy sin is dirty it's like tar baby if you all know the story of tar baby once you get your hand in it it will swallow you up Well, Calvin goes on. He says, or rather the Holy Spirit here has here drawn to the life. He has drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont To be agitated. Besides, there is also here prescribed to us an infallible rule for directing us with respect to the right manner of offering to God the sacrifice of praise. He continues. That sacrifice of praise was he declares to be most precious in his sight. Do you understand that? When we come to wholeheartedly worship God, not to come and sit about somebody who's aggravating us or about that bill that didn't get paid or about what the car needs or what needs to be done to the house. God is not interested in your particular 
inner laundry list when it comes to our worship. He's engaged in every aspect of your life. But when you come here to worship him, he wants your heart. I don't know how to say that any plainer. He wants your heart. He doesn't want absent-minded singing of the hymns. They stink to him. He doesn't like for us to come and just spend the whole time, you know, halfway listening. I was a bad math student. And I would sit and listen to my algebra teacher. I'm sorry, it was the trigonometry teacher. And about mm, a third of the way through the class, I dropped it because I couldn't make heads or tails out of trigonometry. But I would sit there and I would look at her like I was interested, all the time drawing on my paper. God doesn't want worship like that. We're not here to pretend like we're worshiping. He knows better. He wants us to come wholeheartedly to sing to him with joy, to sing to him with adoration. That's what you see. This is what Calvin's telling us. When you come to the Psalms and read them carefully, there's wonderful instruction on how to worship. Well, in short, Calvin closes this quote, there is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God. Close quote. If you don't know how to pray, read the Psalms. Put them in front of you. Get on your knees. Read them and then say, Lord, teach me. And listen to the hearts that are open wide in the Psalms. Listen. Listen to the joys. Listen to the sorrows. Listen to the fear. Help! I've got enemies. They're coming now. I need help now. So, these are remarkable books. I haven't even scratched the surface. The next thing to ask is, how are the Psalms structured? When you read them, it's not like reading a story as such. The one, one psalm can be exhilarating in its joy and the next one can be down in, in sorrow and depression. Well, actually, the, the, the book of psalms is considered to be five books. Some of you know that. It's considered five books. Book one, book two, through book five. <clears throat> book one contains Psalm 1 through 41. Book 2 contains Psalm 42 through 72. Book 3 contains Psalm 73 to 89. Book 4 contains 90 to 106. And Book 5 contains Psalms 107 through 150. And there is a doxology at the end of every psalm that closes a book. It's really wonderful. Uh -uh. For instance, Psalm 41 at the close of book one says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting. Amen and amen. That's worship. 
That's worship. Psalm 72 <clears throat> closes book, uh, book 2. And verse 29 of that psalm says, And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. amen. And that is not a shallow or a phony desire. The day is coming. By the way, the Psalms are eschatological. They point regularly to the future. And they point to a future where God reigns over the nations. Now, he reigns over them right now. But then it's going to be clear. There is going to be an extraordinary time and change. Furthermore, these five books are filled with praise, prayers, instructions, law, lament. That's a, 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 a hymn that expresses sorrow and sadness. <clears throat> and prophecy. King David was a prophet. And he often speaks wonderful words that prove to be true of Christ Jesus, his great descendant. Now, there are categories of psalms that can help us understand the various purposes. <clears throat> and I will go over these quickly. I will send notes to anybody who wants them. If you're writing furiously, I'm moving furiously. So uh, <clears throat> I will be glad to send uh, those things to you. But the very first thing to, to say is there are categories of psalms. They're broken up into various categories. And... Uh, the first is laments. That means asking God for help in trouble and pouring out one's agony and, and anxiety to God. Lamenting. There's praise. Worshiping God for his attributes and his mighty works among men. There's thanksgiving for his answers to prayer and for who he is and for what he does. And for the many blessings that he showers upon us. There are uh, wonderful psalms of law. Admiring these uh, wonderful covenant laws that God has given. You will see law throughout those precious psalms. Or they're hinted at just by the repentance of some of those who write. The, the uh, Psalm 51 does not record the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But when you read Psalm 51, why is he lamenting? Because he knows he's broken a law of which God demands the death penalty. That's why he's crying out for mercy. It isn't just, well, I messed up. <clears throat> In fact, adultery uh, for many years was a capital offense uh, throughout the history of God's people. So God's law, there, there are uh, psalms that have God's law. There are wisdom psalms. <clears throat> they are very much like the books. Uh, there are statements that are uh, like um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. 
there are royal psalms. They are related to the Davidic covenant and its kings. Psalm 2 is a good example. And they all relate to Messiah. <clears throat> then there are historical psalms. Lessons learned from the history of Israel. By the way, history is a, is a, is a dying uh, a dying study in, in the lives of many. And a lot of times I even hear Christians say, I'm not interested in that. That's just a history of the world, history of sin. I just, I'm, and it's like, uh, if you don't know what your history is, you may not be able to gauge at all what you're about to face. You need to know at least a little something. I'm not saying you have to have a doctoral degree, but you need to have some idea where you came from and what the laws of your nation are. <clears throat> because they're being stolen from you all the time. Well, that's a side note. Some of them are prophetic. Some of the Psalms are prophetic. David is even uh, acknowledged as being a prophet in the New Covenant. So <clears throat> we could go on, but these things should tell us there are certain categories of the Psalms that would help us to read them if we have some idea of why something like that is included. Why there are categories. It, it, it doesn't appear immediately. This is, comes from many years of, of um, both theologians and commentators studying God's word and beginning to pick up the threads and the connections. Because at first it just seems like a patchwork of emotions. But it's far more than that. Now, <clears throat> what is the major theme of the Psalms. By the way, you can, got, you can buy a dozen uh, commentaries on the Psalms and uh, you could be hearing some uh, different things uh, here. Again, this is an extremely quick run through. <clears throat> but I, I tend to agree with the things that I have read here. And of course, I'll all the rest of my life be studying these matters. What is the major theme of the Psalms? It is our God is king. Our God is king. Carefully considering all 150 Psalms together, the theme that arises above the others is our God is king. Another way of saying this is the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. The revelation of God's sovereignty, His power, His works, His governance, His blessings, His curses, His judgments, etc. His history. <laughs> All of this appears throughout these spirit-breathed songs. <clears throat> One of the reasons David cries out to him is because of his, he needs God's power, God's protection. Do something with my enemies. Well, how can he do that if he's not the one governing his enemies and all things? There, you begin to feel the theology and the theological principles the more you read because you're realizing they're responding to things in the scriptures. How does David know? Have mercy upon me, O God, 
according to thy loving kindness. How does he know that God is loving kind? Because it's in the scriptures. It's in the scriptures. And he read the scriptures as a faithful king was supposed to do. So the revelation, again, of God's sovereignty appears throughout these songs. Psalm 93.1 says, The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. Psalm 96.10 Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. Psalm 97.1 The Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. And we should. Psalm 99 verse 1 The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. The glory of God's sovereignty as king of the universe is obvious and it bears the fruit of praise to regenerate souls. Don't miss that. If you are a regenerate soul, then God's works among men are something we're to praise. Even when there are things that go against our grain. Well, at this point, we need to switch gears just a little bit and say, we need to understand the importance of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Now that we've got some idea of the lay of the land, the, the horizon for the Psalms is pretty broad. The categories are many. There are lots of emotions from beginning to end. Uh, it's an extraordinary book, even in its literary power. The very words and the way they're used are just uh, sometimes astonishingly beautiful or powerful. But now, what about Psalm 1 and Psalm 2? Uh, they're actually very important to understanding the entire Psalter. Psalm 1 gives the purpose of all five books of the Psalms, and that's faith in and obedience to God which produces a life of holiness and happiness. As J.C. Ryle says, the, the happiest people in the world are the holiest people because it means we're walking with God. We're walking with God. We're walking close to God. We're walking in His precepts. We are delighting in obeying Him. You want to be happy? Stop looking at the world. That's fireworks. It'll be over very shortly. It generally won't be reproduced so i would love to read uh psalm one but i'm fighting the urge right now i i encourage you this afternoon if you have some quiet time to sit down and read psalm one and realize it talks about the happy man why is he happy because he's faithfully walking with god holiness goes hand in hand with happiness in the scriptures and it is true. Obedience to God, and Israel was rarely obedient to God. Faith in and obedience to God produces a life of holiness and happiness. Now, what about Psalm 2? What is, what is it all about? It's about God's king. God's king. A, uh, a Davidic king. And it's very interesting God says, I've set my king upon his, uh, uh, my holy hill of Zion. That's clearly something that will happen in a greater way in the future. 
David was placed right there on the throne on earth. But there are things that we've talked about already where in Psalm 2, it isn't, it isn't possible that that happened with any of the kings that were David's descendants until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then things began to happen. So what you have here is, <clears throat> how can I be a joyful, happy human being, profitable, productive, walk with God? Walk in what God commands. I'm saved by grace. Yes, that's exactly what grace produces. Walking with God according to his commands. Amen. You've got the wrong grace if it's not the fuel encouraging and strengthening you to obey God. <clears throat> now, you see, there's the, 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 the happy man, the righteous man. That means walking according to the law of God. The ultimate righteous man is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that fully kept the Mosaic law. He's ultimately the one that fulfills most of what the Psalms talks about. At least one commentator believes that the entire life of Christ is virtually described in the Psalms. I'm not here to argue that point, just saying there are those that look at it and come to that conclusion. So we have the righteous man contrasted to the wicked man, and then we have God's king. That kind of life and that king are themes that travel through the whole psalm. All of the psalms. Now, there are three other major themes other than our God is king. First, our God reigns through his anointed one. Now, God is God. He governs the entire universe by his power. This is true. He doesn't need any help. But he has chosen to govern through his kings. That's exactly what he did with Israel. In Israel, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed for their office. They were anointed for their office. But it was the anointed king that reigned. The anointed king that reigned. The anointing was symbolic of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. In other words, listen carefully, don't drift here. David was a Messiah. And all the kings were Messiahs. Messiah comes from the Hebrew, Mashiach, which means anointed. They were all anointed ones. But there were, the prophets were not kings. The priests were not kings. The kings were kings. And they were anointed. <clears throat> so, this is set forth explicitly in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
But there is a greater anointed. There is a greater anointed one. David was a man after God's own heart. But he brought great sorrow into his rule and into his family by breaking God's covenant. Jesus never did. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah that utterly fulfills what is promised in the scriptures. I have set my king upon my holy hill. God ruled through his anointed kings and the Davidic covenant came to its fulfillment in Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. And when was he anointed? Well, let's go down to the River Jordan. And there we will witness the anointing of David's son and God's son. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, of course, there is a sense where the eternal Son of God was always the Messiah in the mind and purpose of God. God knows everything. And God knows exactly what his plans are. So there was a sense in which, in the purpose and mind of God, Christ was always the Messiah. He was always the anointed Christ. Yet, <clears throat> this is eternity and God's purpose. Jesus became man to enter history. And here, historically, as he stands in the river, and as he is baptized and is brought up, the Spirit of God comes upon him. Here is the anointed one. John tells us that he had the spirit without measure. Praise the Lord. So, the son of David, the son of God, Christ the King. Now, number two, our destiny is glory. That's another major theme that you find. It's not only about God. It's not only about kings and, and, and messiahs. It's about a lot of things. But there is a, a big chunk of that pointing to glory for God's people. Not only the works of God, the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, but glory for God's people. There are more. This may surprise you, or if, you, if you're someone who loves to read the Psalms a lot, you probably already know this. But there are more sad psalms than happy ones in the book of Psalms. The early parts of the psalms are loaded with laments. For example, Psalm 6, 1 through 3. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I'm weak. O Lord, heal me. For my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, Lord, how long? I'm in trouble. Where are you? It's taken a long time. 
And we can talk to God like that in humility, not in pride. But there's time when we say, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. There's times. How long is it going to take? Lord, how long are we going to go through this? Well, they went through a lot of troubles for a long time. That's why you need to know that God rules. See, if you don't know that our God is king, then when things start getting bad, you lose hope. You give up. But when we know that God is ruling in wisdom, even though it's bad for me, I've got hope. I've got hope any day that I awaken and my heart's heavy. That is the living God. They are pressed with this. <clears throat> well, anyway, Psalm 13, 1 says, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Do you think that's appropriate talk to God? It is. Just then it depends on the heart that it's coming out of. But let me say, with these sad, sad psalms, the way they are laid out, there is a movement through the book that comes to great joy. <clears throat> there is sorrow, sadness, grief. All of those things are there, but there is a movement, and it moves toward glory. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, uh, we can put it this way. There is a movement toward doxology. Psalm 146 through 150 begin with, Praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. <clears throat> Psalm 22. Moving back. This, this is a psalm where we see both. Both sorrow, sadness, lament, and then joy. Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet this song turns to glory and praise. Read to the end. Read to the end. It says, They shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the governor among the nations. There are several very clear themes right there but it's all going to glory it's all going to the joy of the rule of God but it begins with those words that Christ spoke from the cross my God my God why hast thou forsaken me that looked like the end of things to the disciples didn't it but it ends with Christ walking with them and then telling them, go conquer the world for me. And he is advancing the kingdom. We're a part of that. You understand? I mean, the, just going to church doesn't mean much. Coming to worship and to grow in the knowledge and love and service of the Lord, that means something. It isn't just about, well, I grew up in this and my mom and dad dragged me here, so I'm here. 
Well, we pray that God will open your heart. They will bless the fact that they have brought you to church. You know, <clears throat> but it isn't just to come and spend some time. It is to know the living God, to hear his word preached, to have his truth set before us so there is something for our hearts to hang on. Well, uh, again, that remarkable psalm begins with the very language of Christ on the cross, but it ends with the glorious kingdom of God of whom Christ is the king. <clears throat> Finally, <clears throat> our king is coming. Our king is coming. That's the other major theme. The overarching theme, as we have said, is our God is king. The Psalms help us to see that God rules through his anointed one and that our destiny is glory. But those great themes do not stop there. Lastly, the Psalms are eschatological in the sense <clears throat> That they assure us that our king is coming. Now to Israel. That ultimately meant. The coming of the Messiah. Christ in his first coming. To us. The church. <clears throat> we are looking for his second return. He has come to us. By his spirit. Opened our hearts with his word. Given us life. And now he says. <clears throat> Here's the way our life ought to look. Looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Well, there it is right there, the substitutionary death. That he might deliver us and deliver us from our sins. We, we look back to Christ on the cross for the pardon of our sins and his glorious resurrection. And we look forward. We're a people that can look back and look forward. And there's Christ in both places. And we can delight that we're on the way because Christ is on the way. Our King is coming. <clears throat> Psalm 118 uh, verse 26 tells us, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The one that comes in the name of the Lord. And there are several passages like that. It sets the heart of the people to looking for someone. And that happens to be Messiah. And he came according to God's faithfulness. He came in his time. Well, <clears throat> these themes are foundational. And these themes are helpful as one begins to read through the Psalms to see what kind of psalm it is and how I can appropriate it. How can I absorb it into my life uh, by, just by nature? We don't need a, another book generally telling us. You know, that we, we read the Psalms in their times when we see our heart right there on the page and our experience. We understand, wow. Yeah, I know what David says when he says, Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. Well, why do we need our heads lifted up? Because we get down. The best of God's people can fall into great darkness. The great Charles Spurgeon, you think that someone that preached like him couldn't possibly have a down day. And he would have to take time every year, not only for 
his physical ailments, but he would have to go and nurture himself back to spiritual health because he would get so depressed. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> really. So, what we, what we want to know then is, so what? You've just spent all this time telling us something about the Psalms. You couldn't cover it all. Of course I couldn't. I did cover what I had. But it's huge. It's a gigantic book that covers so much of human life. But my brethren, so what? Well, the so what at this point and in this context is, so what is that God sent his spirit to use the author of Hebrews to dive into these psalms and bring out the glory of his son. To bring out of those wells of life, those wells of living water, bring them out and use them, not simply to teach a theology class, but to keep those from apostatizing who were leaving the faith of Jesus Christ because of persecution. It happens. It happens. Apostasy is real. There are those who start the course and don't finish. And they go back to the world. Those are shocking things. <clears throat> it's perhaps among the sad things that pastors face to see someone who seems to be flourishing in the Lord seems to be walking with Christ who that world just get a couple of hooks in and then it starts to tug and all of a sudden they got a problem with the preaching they got problems with what this thing believes we got a problem with this and that and everybody else is having fun and I'm not and they go or they hear some false teaching and they're sucked out by false teaching wolves. Happens. And we could go down the list of the way people can apostatize. We'll have plenty to talk about in this book, so we won't spend time on it now. So in my re remaining time, <clears throat> I want to come back to Hebrews, we've gone to the Psalms, we've gotten a broad picture of the Psalms, and we need to realize, as I said earlier, six of the seven passages used to show that Christ is God and that he's the king of God's kingdom, six out of seven come from the Psalms. What does that tell you? The Psalms reveal Jesus' deity and his kingdom. <clears throat> well, last time we learned that God says that the Son is God. I repeat, we considered the words from Psalm 45, verse 6, but unto the Son, he saith, that he saith, <clears throat> are absolutely vital. He saith, it's God that's saying it. When you go back to Psalm 45, there's a human writer writing and speaking. Look at the connection. God speaks to men 
and they are his vessels for bringing his word into this world. He could have done it a different way. He could have just dropped a perfect book on us without anybody having to write in it. He didn't do that. He used real men, real people, real people that died for the faith, real people that bled and suffered just to serve the living God, either in the Old Testament or in the New. But he used people. But the writer to the Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, this is God speaking. So when we see John, he wrote it, but it's God speaking. Matthew wrote it, but it's God speaking. David wrote Psalms, but it was God speaking. How does that work? I don't know. It is a miracle of God. How can he take fallible vessels to give us his infallible word? But he did. So, under the sun, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Those first words, but unto the Son, He. In that context, it's God. God saith. They're especially remarkable because they're originally on the lips, or at least from the pen, of a human. But the Holy Spirit attributes those words to God. It's the Spirit of God that's saying these are God's words. And those words are important because they say, My Son is God. And it is the God-man that died upon Calvary's cross to save us from our sins. Well, 23 scripture quotations in Hebrews are attributed to God speaking. They're usually, obviously, from a human author. But 23 of those scripture quotations are attributed to God Four of them to Jesus Christ and four of them to the Holy Spirit. Not only do we have these words from the mouth of Almighty God, we see the Trinity set before us in their ways of speaking. The Father speaks, the Son speaks, the Spirit speaks. We see the Holy Trinity that undergirds the epistle to the Hebrews. Brethren, of all the books, I just see the structure of God's word running through this, this book like none other. It's astounding. And I'll tell you why. The author is deeply concerned about what's coming upon God, God's people. And that he wants them to stay with Christ some of you need to know Christ, learn Christ, repent of your sins and come to him. He is a faithful and an almighty savior. There isn't a sin that you've committed that his blood cannot wash clean. It's a Trinitarian thing set out right here before us with all of these glorious quotes from the Old Testament. In other words, there is profit in reading the Old Testament. It is God's word. It's not our covenant. 
And we have to read it from the perspective of Christ and the gospel. But that gives us light to understand things that the Jews themselves did not. Well, the God-breathed text here before us says, A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now, the word scepter means a rod. It means a staff. It's a ceremonial or ornamental rod or staff. Some even say a stick. But it was given as a sign. When someone had a scepter, what it meant is he was the one that had the authority. It's a very important sign throughout the history of the world. It is a symbol of authority and it generally means sovereignty. Again, we don't live under a king who just gives edicts and we have to do them. With the exception of our heavenly king. And we love his commandments because they are not grievous. That's where joy and happiness arises to walk faithfully with our God. So a scepter is very important. And it speaks again of Christ as the king. He has the scepter. And his scepter is a scepter of righteousness. It's the scepter of his kingdom. It is a kingdom of righteousness. There's never been one in this world. There's never been one in this world. But it's building in God's people and it will come to fruition someday in glory. And we will reign with him forever and ever. Esther gives us a perfect example of what we're talking about. Esther sent a message to Hatak to tell Mordecai, whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death. Except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter. There was only one possibility. We talked about this a little bit last week. But I'm wrapping this up for now. How thankful we should be that such a law does not keep any, any, any believer from Jesus Christ and his throne of grace. Jesus Christ, our God, our King, has done everything infinitely necessary that we might come to him. If you can think of it this way now, this letter to the Hebrews is riddled. It's absolutely filled all the way through with quotations and allusions to the Word of God. It is the Word containing the Word for the safety of the souls and even the lives of those he is writing to. And he he goes to that well called the Psalms that has all of those glorious aspects. Our God is king. 
Our God rules through the anointed one. There is glory for God's people. And we can look forward to the future because of the coming king. So, God willing, next week we will take up at that verse so that we may consider this righteous kingdom. What's it like? <clears throat> and why is he talking? Why is the author of this book, why is he talking about that here? Well, he is proving, he is stacking up one verse, one passage of God's infallible word to show that Jesus Christ is the God-man and that he is the hope for every living soul. Jesus is God. Oh, may we never forget that. Well, brethren, I trust that as you read the book of Hebrews, your hearts and minds might be directed, perhaps a little more, to look for Christ, his deity, and his kingdom in that glorious and vast book called the Psalms. May God keep us all until our next gathering. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I pray with all of mine heart that thou wouldst take thy truth and speak to thy people and that they might deeply appreciate finding Christ in those Psalms, that they might see and recognize the, the, the verses that the author of Hebrews many, many centuries later took to show them that their Messiah had come, that anointed one had come. May we believe it today unto everlasting life. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.